Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 12. The Royal Malta Artillery. It is the early evening of Monday, May the 11th, and I've just had a complete day off. I've just walked back through the countryside and through the town. I've arrived at the palace entrance, and I'm filled with an ecstatic desire to work, to paint, for the loveliness of things possesses me. When I woke up this morning, the sheets were all screwed up after a night of restless tossing. Then suddenly, I remembered that the CO had ordered me to take a day off to get my tummy in order. I could hardly believe it. I didn't have to get up, so I lay back among the blankets, quite unable to realise that I had a whole day to myself. I lay there for hours, 
Just let the day happen. I'm too tired to paint, to study, to plan anything special. Just let it happen. At lunchtime, I roused myself and, still clad in dishevelled grey pyjamas, got up and ate some food. I washed and shaved carefully, donned my best khaki uniform of shorts, poplin shirt and tunic, deciding as an afterthought to wear a tie for the first time in Malta. Then, with my friendly blue hat at a jaunty angle on my head, I set out. Babyface and Sergeant Harris, who, not required for flying, were on their way over to Umtafa to see the dreaded hue in hospital, accompanied me through the narrow streets of Naxar and out onto the road that drops down into the valley towards Burkakara, Hamron and Valletta. The white surface of the road was throwing up so much heat that when a small telephone repair lorry stopped alongside and offered us a lift, I quickly forgot my best uniform and climbed into the back with the others. Sitting on some ladders, I looked at the two Maltese workmen that were there. Their clothes hung loosely about them. They had red faces, sunburnt feet, and they seemed to be covered all over with a strange white powder. When the lorry started up and whirled onwards faster and faster along the craggy road, I found out why. The white dust rose up behind us in such dense clouds that we were soon as hotly powdered as the Maltese. We hardly saw Burkakara because of the dust, but by shouting loudly we got the lorry to stop by the arches of the aqueduct just this side of Hamron. We thanked our Maltese benefactors and watched the white dust cloud roll off down the road towards Valletta. Babyface and Harris's road towards Medina and the hospital went off at right angles, giving them a message for the dreaded hue to the effect that I might, but I hoped that I would not be joining him in hospital with a dog. I banged the dust out of my uniform and deciding that Valletta might be somewhat unhealthy, having been visited by three or four hundred bombers yesterday, walked back the way we had come. I not only felt very smart as I walked, but happy. I was alone with the rest of my afternoon stretching out joyously ahead of me, carrying my inevitable blue canvas bag containing writing things, sketchbook and Diana's photograph. I grew frightfully hot as I strode along. The sun scorched down, the air was like fire as I breathed. On reaching Bukikara once again and on looking around for a cafe, I was astonished that there were hardly any shops at all. There were ruins, of course, heaps of rubble with the tall adjoining buildings brutally cracked or opened up so that bedrooms and bathrooms in yellow, violet and pink were poised above me in the blue sky. Business seemed to be carried on in the front rooms of the houses that were left. After passing a long queue that edged slowly into a room where a fat man was weighing out meagre rations on a pair of skeleton iron scales, I stopped at the next house. Its wares displayed at the roadside tempted me to go in. The wizened old lady dressed in black, who explained the Maltese lace trade to me, was so delightful with her wrinkled toothless face that I imagined many such ladies all over the island, sitting in their darkened rooms or perhaps outside their front doors in dazzling white sunlight, all working busily with ancestral skill. I was shown some beautiful things, sweeping cobweb folds of lace with Maltese crosses worked intricately into the limitless patterns. After buying some of this work for Diana, I was still feeling frightfully hot. The old lady directed me towards a cafe, and when I arrived there, I was delighted to recognise the quality of the Maltese lace festooned across its windows. The bell shook on the door as I stepped inside. I would have liked an ice or a hot cup of coffee, but I settled for the only drink available, goat's milk flavoured with almond. Standing at the counter, I took a sip, and on finding it delicious, finished the glass. Sitting down at one of the round tables, I ordered another. The proprietor, in black striped trousers and a white shirt, Having brought it for me, sat down astride a chair, and leaning forward on the back of it, introduced himself as Joe. Ah, yesterday, we all enjoyed, he stated in his broken English. None of the Maltese went to the shelters, he continued. They stand in the streets to watch it all, that Italian bomber. How nice she fall in flames at the very end. Good shooting by the gunners, wasn't it? 
Wonderful shooting by the gunners, exclaimed a chorus of Maltese sitting at other tables. They got him plump in the middle. Woof, they expostulated, mimicking the falling bomber with their hands. Now I liked Joe and I liked his Maltese customers. They were very justly proud of the achievements of the Royal Malta Artillery, especially after the fantastic barrage yesterday, the heaviest concentration of ACAC there has yet been in this war. But I felt proud of our squadron's achievements, so I had to correct the error. The Italian bomber was shot down by my CO, I told them. In fact, pilots from our squadron destroyed the whole Italian formation. I paused, wondering if I should clinch the point by explaining what a nice piece of deflection shooting our CO had made, but instead I veered from the subject a little. In the first raid, I asked, did you see the Spitfire have its tail blown off and the pilot come down by parachute? He was Sergeant Dixon, another of our fellows. Ah, he was exciting. Joe leaned forward with zest, his dark eyes glittering in his egg-shaped face, a face with a blue-black chin, a tint that was carried up either side to his curly hair, a face that would have to be shaved twice or three times a day to keep it in that condition. His next statement took me by surprise. And it was the Royal Malta Artillery, Joseph Azopardi, a gunner in the Royal Malta Artillery, who rescued him from the sea. A spontaneous cry of delight from all the Maltese in the cafe. Touché, I confessed. We're a team. Joe brought another round of goat's milk and drinks for the others who had gathered round us. I pressed him to tell us more about the rescue. Well, he said, all the guns were firing, all the sea was splashing with pieces from the sky, all the people were cheering when someone called out, fighter coming down, and there he was, parachutist. He go into the sea about a mile away, so Joseph and Tony push out in the boat. David Angus and Joseph Camenzuli of Loa Valletta take another boat in case the first one sinks. There were lots and lots of people, a thousand watching, perhaps more, and when they see the pilot isn't hurt, they all cheer. Carmel Palmier brings down whiskey from his bar as they put the pilot all laughing on a door from a broken house as a stretcher. A wonderful day, with lots and lots of bombers shot down. It is a fine victory, and perhaps the Germans do not come back again. Intrigued by Joe, I stayed talking with him for an hour or more. He told me how before the war there had been delightful hotels at St Paul's Bay and other resorts round the coast, how lanterns lit the terraced dance floors high above the sea and how, late into the night, orchestras played. He described his own big cafe in Valletta, how, when it had been destroyed by bombing, he started a new one in Hamrum. Apparently that too had been wrecked, and he pointed out details of how he had built his present cafe from a small disused garage. With a shrug of his shoulders, he apologised for the scarcity of food and drinks. After I talk, I settled at the table to write to Diana, but I was in such agony for the bites of the colossal flies that buzzed around us that, despite Joe's assurance that I would get used to them in time, I could stand it no longer. Laughing uproariously at my inglorious departure, we all shook hands before I set off up the road again. I hadn't gone far when I noticed a flustered old gentleman in another front room shop. He told me in apology that he had just moved in and was trying to sort the stuffs that he'd managed to rescue from yesterday's bombing. I don't know if this news stimulated the custer in me, or whether it was the sudden picture of Diana that floated into my mind. Diana tall and stately in an evening dress, her head with its fair shining curls lifted proudly on her long slender neck. But I determined to buy something. Perhaps I remembered that good materials are impossible to get in England now, but visualising an evening dress, I searched among the rolls of material. As I lifted a roll of heavy Chinese silk, it moved across the light, a wave of opalescence sweeping across its surface like a rainbow. I stood with beating heart as he measured it out. There was enough for a full evening dress with a little over. Happily laden with parcels, yet armed with a resolution to buy no more, I continued my walk up the road, but I was not happy for long. A window filled with paintings caught my eye. Thus I met the Maltese artist, who has become famous throughout the island for his painting of the dive-bombing of HMS Illustrious. 
I was jealous of him, not of his success, but of his opportunities. He must have had considerable success, for he owned his own gallery in the fashionable Strada Reale before the war. He must have had his tragedies too. His gallery was opposite the Opera House. As the Corinthian pillars of the Opera House are now thrown down in the rubble, blocking half the street, I assumed his business had perished by the same bomb. Despite this, he is still able to be painting all the time. Realising that I may not survive to paint on a real canvas ever again, I felt utterly overwhelmed by war. Perhaps it was to cheer myself up, perhaps to satisfy my curiosity about a Maltese cinema, or to indulge the nostalgia for films which I associate with home and England and peacetime, that when I noticed placards outside the local cinema advertising that Green Hell was showing today, I walked across to the grill, behind which a fat, red-faced man in shirt sleeves was selling tickets, paid my one and fourpence and went inside. I waited on a hard seat in the balcony for the show to begin. A breeze shook the tarpaulin that was stretched across a gaping bomb hole in the roof, letting long, narrow shafts of dusty sunlight pierce the gloom. Sunlight also streamed in through the door below as more people arrived. I watched some giggling girls take such a long time in seating themselves in a row of stalls. I watched some young men in dirty lounge suits and trilby hats sauntering to and fro in front of the girls. Finally, some impatient children tugged a reluctant curtain across the door. There was a thunderclap of noise from the gramophone, first some military bands playing marches, followed quickly by hot dance tunes. Now, I have an absolute aversion to military music, and I do not like jazz, but I was astonished to find myself inhaling the music like a perfume. It was beautiful. Next came a repetitive noise that rasped and rasped and rasped and rasped until someone scurried over to lift the needle. Just as suddenly the film began... I was bewildered to see the flickering images in black and white and grey. I couldn't understand what was happening, but after a time I rediscovered the idiom, but the music, the light orchestral music that accompanied the film, it overwhelmed me. I was so overcome as I leaned back in my seat that tears burst from between my closed eyelids rolling down my cheeks. Not having heard music for weeks and weeks and weeks, I continued crying silently. The music seemed to be wrenching my starved soul in such an agony of ecstasy that I could stand it no longer. I had to open my eyes and look. Film stars. Faces like old friends from home. The film was about an expedition through a jungle swamp, which my imagination, frustrated by the black and white flickering screen, rendered in squelching green and soggy brown. Friends indeed. Within a few minutes they were busily at work, indulging that noble pastime of blasting to pieces the sculptured relics of an ancient civilization in their greedy hunt for gold. Monument after archaic monument toppled, shattered on the moonstone steps. As the hero rested from this vandalism, with the heroine nestling closer and closer into his arms, intermission was flashed in front of us. During the interval, I grew vaguely annoyed at some children climbing over the seats, for, as my row was not fastened down, I sat in imminent danger of a back somersault. I also glimpsed several soldiers cuddling Maltese girlfriends in the rows behind me. I thought of the dilemma of the soldiers. Returning to England early in the war, after a full tour of overseas duty, they have got caught up in this Malta siege. They must be despairing of ever returning to their wives, fiancés and sweethearts again. The black and white screen reawoke to a close-up of pouting lips and continued passion, just as suddenly the ominous words air raid warning were flashed upon it. My heart turned sick, but the film continued. It showed the ancient ruins decimated, the gold found, a bloody battle with natives hurling poisonous darts from one side of the screen and the explorers firing their hot guns from the other, and it ended peacefully with a picture of a well-timbered Elizabethan drawing room with the Europeans, uncomfortably clad in dinner jackets, lifting their glasses in toast to adventure.
the Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Outside, anti-aircraft guns were firing salvo after salvo, and we could hear the fainter clap-clap of shells bursting high above us. As I put my tin hat on my head and took the road towards Naxar, I noticed that high above me was the most astonishing sight for Malta. A towering storm cloud with its threatening purple-black base dominated the sky of Aluka. As I looked, two 109s, then four more, were silhouetted for a moment thousands of feet above me before passing into the side of the white vapour. I had barely gone another 20 yards when a formation of JU-88s slid through a gap behind me. They dived through a sudden barrage and were disappearing into the gloom when there was a roar of engines low over the housetops. Six Spitfires were turning in behind them. I was staring southwards, trying to see what was happening in between the houses, when I became aware that someone was standing close beside me. I turned and looked down. Happy eyes glittered back at me from a lined, intelligent, middle-aged face. The man wore khaki uniform with corporal stripes, but his feet were bare in the dust. Glancing at his shoulder flashes, I was immediately intrigued. A member of the Royal Malta Artillery. Would you like to come up on my roof, sir? He asked me. We could see much better from there. So up we went. As we listened to the crash of bombs falling in the distant airdromes, I looked up at the cloud peaks, the avalanches of curling whiteness and the thick Stygian gloom of mauve and purple air, a fantastic battleground for the Spitfires and 109s rushing through it all at high speed. We saw one brilliant piece of shooting by a Spitfire with one of our squadron numbers on it. A 109, which had just dived on a bunch of Spitfires, pulled up sharply when, much to my astonishment, for they were flying much more slowly, a Spitfire pulled up after it. The spit hung there poised in the gloom at a violent angle and, with one burst of cannon, it smote the German. The enemy fighter flicked over onto its back and, belching smoke blacker even than the thunderclouds, it started coming down in an inverted attitude. I then witnessed a sight which I feared for a long time might happen. Obviously anxious to claim it as their victory, two Takali Spitfires raced from opposite directions onto the tail of the falling German. So anxious were they to claim this machine, which incidentally fell into the sea despite their stupidity, that not seeing each other, they crashed together with a frightful report. Glued together for a moment in the dark sky, they broke apart. Two parachutes opened and a gleam of sunlight flickered on a detached wing doing a dance on its own as it fell silently earthwards. The pilots were safe, but they didn't deserve to be. So much for Takali and their claims. Leaving friendly and enemy fighters stalking each other, perhaps more warily in the gloom, the corporal led me down the spiral staircase to the upstairs landing, down a straight flight of stairs into a whitewashed hall dominated by a large aspidistra in a brown pot, then into his kitchen where he brewed tea. We talked, and after the best cup of tea I had yet tasted in Malta, he illustrated his domestic life by showing me his garden. He showed me his grapes tree, his plums tree, his lemons tree, his orange tree and his tangerines tree too. My plums tree isn't so good, he told me. He had the garden wall on top of him. In explanation, he climbed up onto the long heap of white rocks and pointed out seven huge craters in the field beyond. He showed me the chicken house where his brown and white chickens strutted with indignation at the rubble that filled their pen. He showed me his water supply and described how the rainwater falling on the flat roof of his house in the winter was guided to the reservoir beneath the flagstones of a little courtyard for use in the summertime. I was sampling an icy draught of this sparkling water when I realised how late it was getting. 
Next, when he was showing me the rich abundance of his flowers growing in the front garden, I told him most reluctantly that I would have to go. A minute more, he said, rushing away behind the square house. As I waited amongst the palm trees, I thought of his way of life and of the gallant way in which the Royal Malta Artillery are defending it, but he wasn't long. Running back, he pressed into my hands three large bunches of heavily perfumed arum lilies. For your room, he said, and being members of the same team, we smiled at each other with understanding. With complete happiness, I continued my walk towards Naxar. I looked into the brilliant eye of the sun hanging low in the sky between two mountains of flattened violet cloud, their edges fringed with silver. I looked across the central plain, all golden with light, stretching away towards the shadowed hills near Medina. I was thinking of the beauty of the island and of the corporal's home, when I noticed that on a small knoll over which I would soon have to pass was one of those windmill stumps or lookout towers with a large rectangular building at its base, similar to the one at Lucca. Considering it would make a splendid studio, I began to imagine myself as an artist working in Malta in peacetime. I wouldn't have to sell many pictures to pay the rent of £20 a year. In fact, my wife and I might well have money over to spend on trips to Italy to see the masterpieces of painting that we know so well in reproduction. Looking up at the windows high above the road, I imagined a large studio music room with delicately tinted walls and gorgeously coloured carpets on the floor as a setting for Diana playing her grand piano, myself painting at a huge easel. I imagined pictures that I had already finished, large oil paintings thick with brilliant colour decorating the walls. Diana could have happy Maltese servants to keep the house spotlessly clean. We could have our own ice-cold water supply under our own flagstone courtyard, while in the garden we could grow our own vines and oranges. As I walked on, I wondered about the pictures I would be painting in this joyous life. For painting all the time, my pictures would quickly improve. I wondered what kind of style they would have, and this made me think of the great masters of the past and what they might make of the Malta life if they were here. I was passing a cornfield still vibrant with heat and I visualised Vincent van Gogh striding towards me with his flaming red hair and intense eyes. Peter Bruegel would love it too, particularly the peasants, whom he would depict with penetrating caricature. As I thought of Bruegel, I was astonished to see a flock of goats being driven down the road towards me. It was like a vivid Bruegel painting. Bruegel painting an allegory might also have something to say about the torture of war and Malta, about the cumulative strain of action, about the strange madness of the bomb-happy ones. He might even paint the horrors of crushed bodies and torn limbs in another triumph of death. As I walked, I shook my head, dispelling with an effort the image from my mind. I thought about the romantic Delacroix and how he might stand, sketchbook at the ready, amid the firing guns and falling bombs, to depict the fighting men in noble attitudes. The pride of war is so stupid that I cast away the Delacroix images. It seemed to me that I have more sympathy with Goya, for as I reached the foot of the hill up to Naxar, I felt his presence in the evening shadows, standing quite alone. As I entered the narrow streets a few minutes ago, at the end of my slow walk home, the sun had dropped behind the western hills, the clouds were floating serenely, while the houses were bathed in pale light, all luminous in their tender shadowing. I looked in through several of the open front doors and thought how Rembrandt would have loved the orange candlelight and the women sewing behind stout tables. Approaching the palace, I was once again struck by the young girls' faces, of the delicacy of their modelling, of the simplicity yet subtlety of contour. If I love the riot of multicolouring, still more do I love the quietude of evening moments. Botticelli is my closest friend. Thinking of him, as if this town of Naxar were Florence, I seem to hear the Catholic people all around me whispering together. They seem to be saying how scandalous it is for him to use a minx like Simonetta, Lorenzo's mistress, as a model for his Madonna. I'm standing on the palace steps. I'm filled with an ecstatic desire to work, to paint. I'm going to rush up the stairs to my studio and I couldn't have a more beautiful model than Diana. 
But what's this stink of burnt fat and dishcloths? The odour hanging in layers of blue smoke at the foot of the filthy marble stairs. Now at the top I turn towards my bedroom next to the bar, but in my present mood I don't want to talk to all my companions. Hello, Dennis. The happy faces smile a greeting. Did you hear what happened to the Aitai who bailed out of the burning bomber last night? I shake my head. I don't want to know. I can guess all too easily. The picture of the tumbling bomber and now of the poor helpless figure with streaming parachute is starkly vivid in my mind. Well, he came down on top of a fountain and the spike went up through his arsehole and impaled him there. I am back in the RAF, a member of a war team. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.